Hi everyone and welcome to episode 25 of the Sweet Spot on a Farm podcast. In case this is your first episode and you're not sure what to expect, this is a podcast about natural health in which my guests and I talk about healthy eating, nutrition, fitness and well-being in general. My guests share mostly plant-based recipes and we offer eating and cooking tips. I interview professionals from around Northern Ireland and beyond and every fortnight we bring you a new episode. This is our second episode of 2019 and my guest is someone I interviewed last year. Nick is a Belfast-based chiropractor who believes that the way we think, eat and move are the main three pillars of our health we need to look at in order to keep healthy. His deep interest in nutrition, diet, fitness, epigenetics and a lot more and his relentless study resulted in yet another podcast and I really hope you enjoy it. Hi Nick, how are you? Good thanks, good to be back on. I'd like to go back a wee bit to our last podcast, to the keto chat, because I want to know what your secret is, how keto works for your workouts specifically and are you still on keto diet or do you dip in and out? Are you carb cycling? I am still keto most of the time, but uh, with Christmas that just passed, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, like everybody else, uh, um, didn't, uh, didn't go keto. And um, I'm taking a little bit of a keto break in January, but plan on going back in February. I also, like everybody else, want to be able to save a bit of money in January and uh, want to save a bit of time. So there was a deal that came across on um, Slim's Healthy Kitchen there recently, where it was 48 meals for the cost of 120 pounds. It's lunch and dinner for the entire month of January. So I was thinking, looking at my food bill um, from previous months and how much I spend on food, and then I saw 120, I'm like, yeah, that's going <laughs> to save me a lot of money. So um, I'm getting a lot of nutritious meals from, from Slim's, uh, which is great, and uh, saving the time of prepping foods. But what I plan on doing as soon as January is over is starting into a five-day fast. I don't even think last time we talked, uh, I mentioned that, uh, well, I did a fast, I think it was after, because we this last time that we talked was in April, I think, or just before April, Got you put it up live in April. Uh, and so I actually did a prolonged fast, my first ever five-day fast. So I plan on doing that again in February and then going back full keto after that. I did a two-day liver cleanse and for two days I only drank herbal teas, water and vegetable broth and I didn't eat anything. And on the on the first day, I mean, I when I do my 24-hour fasts, which I still do regularly, towards the end of the day I really go to bed thinking, oh my god, let it be morning really quickly because I can't wait to eat breakfast. But the second day, I was suddenly feeling incredibly energized. I suddenly got this burst of energy. I cleaned the whole apartment and I like, studied for like five hours and I was just like, suddenly I felt like this burst of energy. What is it? Yeah, no, that's, that's incredible. And I think uh, a lot of people who get past that adaptation phase where they are starting to break down their own fats, basically I view it as that when we eat and we overeat, and a lot of people do overeat, they store energy as 
fat tissue, but they're like battery cells across the body that we never tap into. And when you actually can teach the body to tap into those battery cells, you do have a burst of energy and you feel great from that. So I think a lot of that is starting to adapt into the energy that we're meant to burn for, for fuel. The common misconception that's been out there is that you're gonna have a dip in performance and that you're gonna lose muscle on keto. And with the plethora of evidence that's out there, that's actually quite false. Um, the biggest thing I think as an advantage to the keto is a better function within the cells themselves. So you had a metabolic advantage is uh, pretty much what it's called. And what that means is you're going to have better energy. You're going to uh, start to burn more fat for energy uh, when you are keto because you're getting adapted to high fats through the diet itself. And what this does is it creates more actually brown adipose tissue there. And this helps increase the amount of energy that you have. Um, it has Keto has a lot of signaling effects to especially the hunger hormones in the body, the leptin and ghrelin. And you know when you have those signaling effects, you actually become less hungry and you can go those periods of time. And I think that is a really big advantage for people who want to even do practice uh, you know, fasting, intermittent fasting and, and that type of stuff there. So when you are on keto, what's your workout and eating routine like? I know we're all different and something different will, will work for somebody else, but I really wanna hear something as an example because that really interests me. I think one of the best things that I do as, as a routine when I when I do uh, full keto is I try to utilize getting ketones in my body any way possible. And we just talked about fasting and fasting is a great way to tap into ketones. So I do a 16-8 fast. I mentioned this there uh, on the last podcast a little bit about the 16-8. So essentially I have an eight hour eating window and in the 16 hours I'm not eating, uh, my body's creating ketones and I'm going through autophagy, renewing damaged cells. And then um, usually having foods like uh, coconut oil um, that are quick burning to make ketone bodies is is really good or MCT oil. Diet wise, when uh, when I'm keto, I'm really snacking a lot of keto friendly snacks like nuts and seeds. Um, Recently, actually, somebody had just sent me through my Instagram. Uh, these keto-friendly chocolate bars, and I actually was kind of wishing that I had one to give you today, but I ate them all. I got nine, and they're they're fantastic because the, they actually, and I was actually giving little chunks uh, to, to any of my patients that wanted to try them, and they they are like, this actually tastes really good for these keto chocolate bars. It was a, a company called Keto Cacao, um, and they're out of um, they're out of Holland, they're out of Amsterdam. So. Uh, that was really good. So these little snacks, um, of course I have my exogenous ketones as well and I think that's a really good hack to elevate those levels. Food and diet wise, so two meals per day, generally um, I allowed a lot of the breakfast type uh, ones, of course your bacon and eggs and, and, and I've had the avocado into it. Um, but I just grab different recipes online. I, you know, I try to mix it up and try to have something new each each time and really kind of go with that. In terms of my workouts, I, I keep a standard workout um, as most sort of resistance training type uh, activities. I don't do a lot of cardio or a lot of HIIT, um, although I would be an advocate for the benefits of HIIT exercise. I would do a split of working chest and triceps on uh, say a Sunday, Monday back and biceps, uh, Tuesday legs, sh- uh, 
Wednesday sort of shoulders um, and then go into arms the next day. Uh, so that's sort of my split, try to mix up the push and pull movements and legs. Um, but uh, lately, kind of like you mentioned, you had an injury with, with your, was it your foot, was it? Yeah. Yeah, I had an injury with uh, a groin muscle playing soccer, playing football. Ouch. So um, a full grade tear of the adductor longus tendon. So I've not been doing legs uh, as much. Uh, and kind of recovering from that and taking a break from playing the football. Um, so that's, that's sort of what my routine and my eating schedule has been like though anyways. Do you eat before or after workout or how long uh, between a meal and a workout do you normally have? I, I would occasionally take um, either a coffee or a pre-workout supplement before kind of to get in, in that zone essentially. Intra-workout, I would have amino acids. Uh, I find that amino acids are the best for building blocks um, as an intra-workout. And after, I really get the protein from food. So I, I would have a meal after. And I think that is the best way to uh, stimulate um, growth hormone in the body to tell the body to really build those muscles and in those areas and so that that's kind of what I would do I really wouldn't eat too much before because I, I think that would kind of make you feel maybe a little bit more lethargic or filled up um, but more of those uh, amino acids during and uh, yeah you know, do after. you work out in the morning or in the evening I am definitely a night owl um, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not so much a morning person so for me working out in the evening is really the best option you know for me however I do think that for most people starting your day with a bit of exercise is probably one of the best ways to energize yourself throughout the day so I would I would suggest for most people if they can work out sometime in the morning they're gonna feel probably way better and I don't think it's uh, working out at night like I do is necessarily the best at helping you get to sleep. I think sleep is super important um, and uh, workouts can kind of curb that a little bit. And so, uh, yeah, that's a, a bit of advice. And actually how I, I found out a little bit about my own sleep and how my own workouts are affecting my sleep and how my own diet is is I don't know if you've noticed uh, since you came in, but I have a little bit of a wearable technology on my hand, a ring. Yeah. I'm not really big into wearing jewelry or watches or anything like that, but um, I've came across something that measures your sleep and mm -hmm. it's called an aura ring. Have you heard of it? No. So you can see on the inside of this ring, there's three sensors there. Oh, there yeah. is a sensor that measures your heart rate variability. Okay. Um, so the, the distance between your, your heartbeats, uh, it measures your temperature and it measures your movement. So a gyroscope as well. And through all of that information, it can tell you what stage of sleep you're in. Mm -hmm. And then it can give you a score. Usually they give you a score out of 100 of your sleep, your readiness, and your activity. They take all of that and give you reports and feedback and different information about what you're doing in your everyday life and how that's affecting the quality of your sleep. So some of the reports do tell me try to avoid working out too late at night. Um, I find that this this technology has actually helped me as well. That's pretty cool. I have some, I got um, actually this kind of, it's, it's the kind of fitness watch thingy. Yep. So that measures my sleep as well and I have an app on my phone. Mm -hmm. 
and when I connect it to my phone in the morning, it will tell me how many hours I slept and how many hours I was in deep sleep, how many hours I was in light sleep, and how yeah. many hours it was kind of the kind of awake sleep type yeah, of thing. Yeah, like, um, yeah. So that's really um, that's really interesting because sometimes when I don't think I slept very much, I look at the album and it's like, oh, I actually slept seven hours. Hmm, doesn't feel like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. But yeah, it's, it, no, that is definitely really important. But you said something there, and I wanted to ask you, uh, ask you a question, and then I completely forgot. Oh yes, do you count your calories at all? No, I don't. I've played around with a couple different apps on my phone, but I, I'm not really big into counting calories. Um, I, I think the one good thing about the the meal plans that I've done is it tells me already all the calories, and I oh, know yeah. I'm not eating any any more food so when I look on like like uh, you're mentioned with your watch and, and the app when I look on the aura app um, it also tells me how many calories I've burned mm. so I can look at my meals see how many calories in the, in the two meals that I eat and then how many calories I've burned and I kind of know if I'm in a, a surplus or you know I kind of go in and out of counting calories and and sometimes I just do just to check to make sure that I actually do eat enough because most of the time I probably don't but um, there was something um, you said about, um, that I wanted to mention, um, you said about not losing muscle mass when mm -hmm. you're on keto. We went on our six day hike in Moroccan mountains back in October and over the six days, um, it's a lot of hiking. I mean, we, we, we um, did something like 114 kilometers over the six days and you burn a lot of energy. I did not eat as much as I would when I'm at home. Mm -hmm. um, I always had breakfast, but then uh, lunches and dinners were fairly light. So I probably would have gotten into me maybe 15, 1600 kilocalories a day, but we would have burned, I probably would have burned about 3000 kilocalories plus a day under normal circumstances if i would have eaten how most people eat like a Your standard just diet. carb heavier yeah. diet yeah. i would have come back looking like i've been seriously ill and not eating for a few weeks or months yeah i came back looking probably even stronger than i just couldn't believe it like i look at the pictures before and after and i went to stand on scales when we got back like my weight was pretty much the same and I felt stronger. Yeah. What is the deal with that? It's ketones <laughs> have uh, anti-catabolic effects. So they spare muscles. Um, and uh, that I think is the, the main thing is that when you have elevated levels of ketones in your body, um, they're going to protect the muscles. They also will protect against oxidative stress to uh, joints and to the cells. So um, I think uh, that's probably the main mechanism that's keeping those muscles strong. They've done a lot of studies um, on this and they've used CrossFit athletes. And there's actually a girl, um, her name's Rachel Gregory, and she did a study, it was a six-week six study of 32 participants and they uh, split it into half a group of keto and half the group not keto and um, she wanted to measure um, all sorts of things including performance uh, and uh, body fat percentage they used what was the considered the gold standard a dexa scan to look at body fat percentage and after the six weeks which it doesn't maybe sound like a lot, but six weeks, a lot of the studies on keto have been only done on two weeks. And they, they, you know, in two weeks, you can't really get adapted and there might be a small um, decrease in performance. But at six weeks, 
where it's a little bit more significant amount of time, uh, she had found that uh, these these athletes would, on average, lose, I think it was like 2.5% body fat, and they lost about 7 or 8 pounds in that, in that time. They compared the performance, and there was no drop in performance on keto. So that's why I said earlier that it's a misconception to think that you're going to lose performance when you get when you're, when you're kind of primarily taking keto um, compared to the, the standard sort of diet. One other interesting person that I've come across um, as of recently that is a bodybuilder is um, a guy, he goes by the moniker Keto Savage, and he's got a podcast and things himself, and talks about sort of the muscle side of things. So if any of the listeners are kind of interested in bodybuilding or powerlifting or in the strength training side of things, um, I would recommend them to uh, check out um, the Keto Savage and, you know, really kind of learn a little bit about what he does that way in, in terms of muscle building. Okay, guys, check it out. I, I know I will. Um, let's steer away from keto now because I think we've uh, we've talked a lot about it, but what I'm really interested um, in today is um, you've recently become really interested in a couple of other things, epigenetics and the triage theory of macronutrients. What is all this about? I mean, we, we will cover each of those things um, separately uh, and explain what it is, but first tell me, why did you become interested in it? And, and uh, how does it relate to your own personal life? And do you in any way incorporate it into your practice? I've become interested in a lot of these things because, well, one, first, I'm just completely interested in everything health. And I it, part of my, my job as a chiropractor, I feel, is to be the best educator and um, to be able to give the best advice and, and help to any of the patients that come in. And since I, I view health as being more than just what we eat or just how we move, it is a combination of all of those things. And, you know, I mentioned to you on, on the previous podcast, I, I think that health is the way that we eat, think, and move. So my interest has always been in learning other ways to help people other than the way that they can move. And, and movement, of course, is so important. I don't want to undermine it because I could talk for hours about how moving is going to help people be as, as healthy as they can and, and uh, avoid degenerative changes and, and arthritis and things like that, learning how to move properly and by getting adjusted and, and doing things like yoga and Pilates. But I wanted to be able to expand on that. And that's where I kind of got into the keto as a, as a dietary intervention uh, based on the, just the, so much information on what uh, people can benefit from. When it came to the other things like uh, epigenetics and nutrigenomics, I wanted to understand the relationship of how lifestyle affects our our genes and how nutrition affects our genes. So uh, nutrigenomics is more on um, how micronutrients are going to help change the, the expression of the genes. And then epigenetics is more lifestyle factors like exercise and things like that. What got me interested in all of this was, uh, was first hearing how keto affects all of that. And I, I think that's absolutely fascinating, but I can get into that a little bit later. But what I wanted to do is test my own genetics, my own genome, and find out what really makes me. We have the science and the technology out there to be able to see into our own cells and our own DNA and learn how we can use that information to improve our health as best as possible. So I embarked on a little bit of a journey where 
I got my DNA sequenced. And I did this through a company called 23andMe. I don't know if you've heard of 23andMe or not. No. They're fantastic. 23andMe will take a sample of your saliva, they'll take it to the lab, and they'll analyze your entire DNA. They'll look for white blood cells in there, and they'll sequence that DNA and tell you so much information about your own self. So what's interesting is that I was able to find a lot out about my own ancestry and my own health, which has always been very, very interesting to, for me to find out um, based on my, my own gene expression. I am, uh, look very Italian, I think, compared to the rest of my family. I, I think I have uh, darker, darker features, darker eyes, darker hair then say my, my brother and sister are bright blue eyes or me my brown eyes and and uh, even the olive toned skin um, compared to the pale white of my brother and sister. So I was always interested in finding a little bit more uh, about myself. And um, when I looked into the, the findings of the 23andMe, I, I took it as a chance to even learn more about what can change the, the factors of our genes and how that's expressed. I found so much information, um, it's, it's mind-blowing, you know, finding things about health risks, finding things about carrier status traits, finding things about just general traits, you know, things I already knew, like that, for example, that I'm likely to have dimples or prefer salty flavors versus sweet flavors, that I'm less likely to go bald, you know, having a father <laughs> who's bald, oh, um, that's, <laughs> that's good that I'm not going to lose my hair. Um, but I found about health traits, I think which is the most important for any of the listeners or anybody who would consider doing this. I believe that it might be scary to learn a little bit about your health and some people I can understand might just not wanna know. They wanna just take life as is and not wanna know what they might be at risk for. But I find if you are likely to know what's going to be the source of you know, your demise, essentially, then you can do all the appropriate things at earlier stages to know how to combat that. And I, I kind of view that as almost like an engineer, where an engineer will look at a project, say they're building a bridge, and they will see, okay, I need this many materials, I need this, this much, the bridge is that long, and then they plan ahead of time to know how to, to build that. They don't just go and whimsily build it, um, or they would not have a very good end product. So what I had found out um, about myself is that um, the only out of, out of the nine major risk factors that they uh, explain, they look at things like um, they're looking for a gene called the APOE gene, which is uh, found in people with higher significance of Alzheimer's disease. They will look at the BRAC1 and the BRAC2 genes, which usually um, are for people who have higher risk of cancers usually breast cancers or prostate cancers. They look at all these different things. The one that I found even myself, which was interesting, was that a slight higher risk at amacular degeneration in the eyes, but it says not at, um, not any more than the, the likely population. So now that I know that there's a slight, I don't need glasses or contacts or anything like that, and my vision is, is pretty much 20-20, but now that I know that there's a potential chance of one out of two alleles in, in this, I can take the steps to make sure I eat enough carrots. I can, you know, get all of the those nutrients and vitamins and try to change my behavior so that I can avoid things that are too much strain on the eyes. You know, maybe wearing blue light protective, you know, glasses at night to help with sleep as well, but also to protect the eyes. 
or to avoid just too much screen time. I think in this day and age, we're just constantly at our phones and computers, you know, checking social medias and things like this. It's putting strain on our eyes. So um, that was one interesting thing that I found out. But on top of that, I was then able to learn a lot more about even how medications would affect my genes um, and how certain nutrients affect the genes. The 23andMe is a pretty nice overview on their website where you can kind of uh, navigate through the various different things. What you can do is it gives you all your access to your raw data, which means that you can save that as like a zip file or a PDF type file. And you can upload that to other websites that will further analyze your, your genes and give you even additional reports that you might not have got on the 23andMe. So for example, there's another amazing library of, I think it's like 57,000 different um, gene expressions. They're, they're called uh, SNPs or polymorphisms, um, and they will tell you all sorts about yourself. So I had found out that warfarin, for example, was most people will know is a, a blood thinning medication. In my own genetics, that I am not uh, as good at absorbing or digesting warfarin as, as some people. So not that I need a warfarin or for any reason, but now that I know that that medication is not that effective for me. Uh, same thing for a certain medication, it says, uh, called Alonzoprine, which I think is uh, helpful for uh, bipolarism or those types of things it's usually administered. And it says that if I was to take this medication, I would gain a lot of weight. I think a lot of people that take antipsychotic type medications do gain a lot of weight and they don't know why and they then fight with weight loss and all sorts of different things. And the doctors don't know that they have this polymorphism because they're not testing their genetics. And so if people took the, the opportunity to test their own genetics, they would know themselves what maybe medications uh, might affect them and uh, that can help them in a beneficial way. Also a really positive thing I was able to find out and take action on, I found that the vitamin B9, I believe it is folate uh, or folic acid, is something as well that I am about 60% effective at digesting through food. So supplementing with uh, folic acid is uh, would be beneficial for myself, especially since folate, when it's converted down the line in all these different pathways, can also help with genetic expression and forming new DNA. So without enough folate, you're not actually creating new DNA as effectively as you can. So not knowing that before I did this test, now I can take the appropriate steps. God, my mind's blown now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, actually, um, I did tell you before that actually I uh, got a DNA test uh, for my partner, but it did not go into so much depth. This is really, really interesting. God, I want to do one. Yeah. Now. <laughs> so yeah, there's well, there's a couple good ones. Prometheus. I, I think people would think that I'm trying to pronounce Prometheus, like uh, like the movie, or but no, it's actually spelled P-R-O-M-E-A-T-H-E-A-S-E. -E. So Prometheus oh. okay. is is how it actually is. And you just upload your 23andMe data to Prometheus, and they give you the information. I, I the 23andMe. What I would suggest for anybody that is interested in doing it is now that Boots has it online. So they've actually amalgamated to work with each other a little bit. So you can buy the 23andMe kit from Boots or you can go to the 23andMe website. And what I would recommend anybody who's interested in doing this uh, to do is to wait until like a family holiday. Wait until Mother's Day, Father's Day or whatever because 
I think um, they know that people are going to want to buy this as gifts. They and they do usually about a thirty percent discount. So the test, the health and ancestry, costs one hundred and fifty pounds. So if you wait till it's a thirty percent discount, you'll get fifty pound off. You'll get the health and ancestry for a hundred quid. So I think that is probably the best uh, best tip or that advice. That is a really good price as well. And and you know the the good thing is you get that access to that information. And there's even more studies and more things coming out. You get notified when that happens. One thing that um, I just got notified of uh, a good couple weeks ago was that they had found more links to various different interesting traits. Uh, I had found out that um, I am no more or less likely to be bit by mosquitoes. I found out that I'm not afraid of heights. Um, some people have a gene sequence that will say that they're afraid of heights. And the last thing that I found out just as of recently, all out of interest, of course, is that I am not able to match perfect pitch um, for music and things, which I know <laughs> I'm not a great singer, so I'm not even going to attempt to do that. Um, but now I know that genetically, I'm not meant to sing. So, <laughs> so <laughs> how does this come to... Uh epigenetics and nutrigenomics so am i yes. saying it right so yeah. where does so i guess this is the starting point for um either or both yeah exactly so well um looking um in, into both of these nutrigenomics is is really an interesting field and this is where i come into learning a little bit more about the triage theory of micronutrients and this was first proposed by a guy by the name of Dr. Bruce Ames. And if this is true, this proposal of triage theory, then it has massive implications towards learning more about our, our health and how we can improve chronic illness and disease. And uh, it absolutely blows my mind, this type of stuff. So what it proposes is that our own bodies has a triage, just like in a hospital, taking the most important cases or emergencies through first, but of micronutrients. So in the event of micronutrient deficiencies, the processes involved with those nutrients for survival are taken first. So when it comes to micronutrients, all the essential nutrients, and you think about all the B vitamins, and you think about vitamin D, for example, you think about magnesium as a mineral, all of these are involved in processes of different gene expressions and different healthy things going on in our body. And in the event that one of those is deficient, then something is sacrificed. So for example, one of the best, um, best examples I've come across is magnesium itself. Magnesium is used for a lot of different things and one thing is for energy production. Now without energy, we can't live and therefore we would die. Um, but magnesium is also very important at cellular repair and fixing damage to DNA. So if we're deficient in magnesium, which you get from green leafy vegetables, and because since magnesium's at the center of the chloroform molecule, which makes you know plants green, um, good sources of magnesium, kale and spinach and all these things are, are very important to add into the diet. What can happen if you're deficient is the body will shunt all that magnesium towards creating energy and none of it towards repairing cellular damage. Down the line, this is gonna have its effects on aging. We're gonna age quicker, we're gonna have less protection against reactive oxygen species, uh, which are essentially damages from 
you know, radiation exposure, damages from pollutants and toxins and all those things that cause us to, to age, um, magnesium is really helpful at doing that. So that's one example. Another one I find actually really interesting is vitamin K. Again, if you think about vitamin K, it's in a lot of good plants. Vitamin K is essential to photosynthesis in plants, but vitamin K is needed uh, for coagulation, which means blood clotting. And this is a vital function within inside the body. But vitamin K is also important at moving calcium through the bloodstream to where it needs to go. It's a transporter essentially. So calcium needs to go to bones and things like that. And if we are deficient in vitamin K, what happens is we use it for blood clotting, but we don't use it for transport. And what they've been finding a little bit through some of these studies is that people who die of heart disease, people die of atherosclerotic plaque buildups um, in, the, in the arteries, they're deficient in vitamin K. So what happens is calcium builds up in the arteries, uh, starts affecting the flow in there, starts affecting the heart, and um, people also get osteoporosis, which is a weakening of the bones. And that makes sense if you're not getting the calcium to where it needs to go. The bones are gonna be weak, they're more uh, subject to fractures, and, uh, and of course, this is very important in aging because if a fracture can be fatal, uh, especially hip fractures in the elderly, usually people don't have much longer to live if, if this type of thing. So learning if you're getting enough vitamin K, and again, I stress is that a lot of plants that vitamin K, then that's gonna help stave off different types of chronic illnesses and things down the line. So I find that this theory seems to be true and absolutely fascinating in terms of understanding why nutrients are so important um, and what we can do about it. And also what's, what blows my mind as well is that uh, vitamin D, for example, is another massive one. I think people realize vitamin D is important for feeling good, it's good for immunity, good for a lot of things. Uh, but also, what's important is that these epigenetic changes that I've talked about, they get passed down onto future generations. So yes, we know our genes get passed down, but the epigenes also get passed down. And really, to best explain what epigenetics is, I want to kind of go back a little bit before I talk about vitamin D, is that when we have our double helix structure that we remember from school and biology, is it's not just as simple as these strands of DNA and these connections of the, the uh, acids, the C, T, and the, or the A, T, and the C, and G connections. Um, what happens is in between these double-strand helixes, we have these things called histones. And histones are proteins that bind the DNA and they will make the DNA either readable or not readable. So if these histones are tightly bound in, then the DNA can't be read, and that means that those genes can't be expressed. So that's what epigenetics is, is it changes the expression of our already set genes. Does that, does that sort of make sense? That sounds insane. Yeah, so this is what we've been learning, is what we do in our everyday life that changes the readability, essentially, of these genes. So these histoproteins will wind in or wind out. And what we want is we want to unwind the good processes in our body so that they can be read and express health. And we want to you know, wind in the bad processes and things. So when it comes to um, 
vitamin D, for example, and the, and the wound in, it can be passed on. That's what I'm saying is that, that this, this, uh, this part of how tightly wound our DNA is will be passed on from generations. And they've done amazing studies where they found this out. So, for example, they've done a study with uh, mice, an obese father of mice, and they find that this obesity is, is winding in the ability to create insulin and things, and that actually gets affected down the line to a future offspring. So vitamin D is also in terms of the triage theory of micronutrients and things like that. What vitamin D actually is, is a steroid hormone. And that means it's fat soluble. So if we are deficient in vitamin D, and there's lots of risk factors to being deficient in vitamin D, including obesity. Obesity is a major risk factor because essentially vitamin D from the sun, which is the greatest source of vitamin D we can, we can essentially get, is minimized through being absorbed into the fat and not into the bloodstream. Now, where this is really important in embryonic development for especially pregnant mothers is that if the mother is deficient in vitamin D, well, vitamin D acts as a cofactor or uh, helping a process for brain development. What it does is vitamin D helps convert a, a sort of amino acid called tryptophan into serotonin in the brain. Serotonin is needed to create better brain functions and better growth and the structure of brains, so especially in embryos or babies. So there is a few really, really fascinating studies that are out there that have found that mothers who are deficient in vitamin D and obesity being one factor, that can affect the brain development of the embryo, which can lead down the line to symptoms similar to autism. Um, behavioral type symptoms. Not saying it's causing autism, but I'm saying that uh, the brain can't develop as much. And so people don't realize maybe that certain micronutrients that are important for health and wellness actually can be affecting future generations and, and what's going on inside our bodies. So that's another example of a really interesting finding that I've come across. This is insane. Yeah. It's incredible at the same time because if we know all that, then we can really prevent a hell of a lot of issues and we can really properly hack our health and, and better our health on a daily basis. Yeah. Like knowing all this, this is incredible. I, I think biohacking, I, I'm not a huge fan of the term. But it's actually just really keeping healthy. Yeah. All this information, imagine what we can do, what average person can do. Definitely. I, I think biohacking to me is understanding how things are affecting our biology, affecting our genes or epigenetics and things like that there as well. So what is really interesting is I've become also really interested in longevity, anti-aging, keeping us as healthy as long as possible and uh, living for as long as possible. And I, I am absorbed by people that talk about this and I really try to gather as much information and I've come across also so much mind-blowing things that I couldn't wait to share with you. And that's, that's why I really wanted to talk about this. Like keto excites me, but all this other stuff does uh, completely excite me as well. We're going to split the episode now. I did warn you that this may be another two-parter and with Nick having so much information to share, it was to be expected. I promise that we were not paid by the 23andMe or Boots for that matter for advertising. And Nick was just sharing his own personal experience and recommendations. 
Now, since our guest recipe is shared in the second half of this interview, I'm going to give you one of my own. Nick mentioned carrots there in relation to his eye health, so I'm going to share a recipe for a carrot bread. It's one of my newest ones and I was making a lot of it over the Christmas time. The prep is quick and easy and then you just pop it in the oven and wait for it. So what you'll need is 200 grams of quinoa flakes, 20 grams of psyllium husks, 75 grams of cashew nuts, uh, 25 grams of coconut flour, about half a teaspoon of sea salt, 30 grams of ground flax or ground chia seeds, 15 grams of ground ginger, 3 teaspoons of ground cinnamon, 8 to 10 whole cloves, half a teaspoon of baking soda and half a teaspoon of freshly squeezed lemon juice, 3 medium carrots for steaming, 1 small carrot for grating, 100 grams of coconut oil uh, melted and 350 ml of dairy-free milk of your choice. Now what you do is preferably you would soak the cashews overnight for better digestion but you don't have to do it if you don't want to. You melt the coconut oil, I'll usually place it in a bowl and put it in the oven at the lowest temperature for up to 5 minutes or you can put it in a steamer or you can put it over a pot with boiling water. You can do it whichever way you prefer. Then you place all the dry ingredients in a bowl and mix them together but keep the whole cloves aside because you'll need them at the end. Drain, rinse and pat dry the nuts Roughly chop them with a knife and add them into the bowl. Now the carrots, peel them if they're not organic. If they are, you don't have to peel them at all. Chop them and steep them for 10 to 12 minutes until soft. And once they're steamed, you blend them together with the melted coconut oil and mix it into the dry mixture. Add in the baking soda with the lemon juice and the last thing is grate the small carrot on a fine grater and then just add it to the mix. Now mix the dough until all ingredients are well combined and it should feel like a thick bread mixture and it should be a little sticky. Then form it into a large loaf and place it into a baking paper lined dish, preferably bread tin if you have one. If not, then anything that will allow you to form some sort of bread shape. Uh, and stick the cloves into the bread and then bake the bread at 180 degrees for about 40 minutes. Uh, once it's done you leave the oven off but keep the bread in just turn it upside down and just leave it there and you can uh, leave it there to cool down overnight and then in the morning you can slice it up and keep it in the fridge. If you know you're not going to use it over the next five days or so, you can put some of the slices in the freezer, it defrosts really quickly and um, you can also um, put it under the grill before you eat it to make it a little bit crispy. And that's it, um, you can serve it with um, nut or seed butter, you can spread just some coconut oil or plain vegan yogurt over it which is really nice with some chopped nuts um, or you can have it uh, more savory style with some homemade spicy pesto or just eat it plain as a side with a soup or a hot pot type of dish. Remember that you can
can catch all our shared recipes on our Facebook page. You can find us under the sweet spot on a farm. It's a public Facebook group. You can join, but you can you should be able to see the content even without joining if you don't want to. And you can also find it on Instagram uh, where I post our shared recipes every time we release a new episode. Before I wrap it up today, um, I'd like to finish with a shout out to one of my previous guests, actually. I've just noticed that Liam O'Neill, if any of you follow Liam, uh, Liam has a podcast now and you can catch his short and uh, really interesting daily musings on www.podbean.com under the title Limitation is a Mirage. Oh, um, and one more thing. Um, If you are based in Northern Ireland, remember that on Sunday the 3rd of February, we are hosting a charity coffee morning for a local mental health charity, Mind Your Mate and Yourself. And you will find us at Azora Co-op in Hillsborough. If you want to know more, you can find all the details on Facebook and I will post something on Instagram as well a week before the event. So keep an eye out and hopefully we'll see some of you there. And that's it for this episode. Um, Have a great couple of weeks. Check out the 23andMe if you have time. And more importantly, stay healthy. Until next time, goodbye. As every week, your host is myself, Susanna from The Sweet Spot, music by Mark J. Adair and artwork by Gemma O'Hagan. Thank you for listening. Thank you.